0: Good morning church, so good to be with you today and, and I just want to just before I begin I want to just remind you that this time of year uh, as we turn the corner into the holidays always, always affords us several opportunities as a church to, to reflect the grace of God to the culture around us and to uh, practice extreme generosity and, and just a couple of things I want to remind you of. Number one is our Christmas offering four weeks from today. Uh, December 17th, we'll have the opportunity to give over and above our normal tithes and offerings. And and, uh, it's always a glorious time to, to get to give and to get to pray about and to get to participate with what God is leading us to do. And I just want to remind you that this year the Christmas offering is going to go to help us take care of four different things. One. Uh, a campus in Jinx, Oklahoma. Uh, we're going to purchase at 118th and Elwood. And in fact, the contract was signed this last week, two years in the making. This contract was signed this last week. We got a building that would cost us over $10 million to build, 60,000 square feet for $4.5 million. And, and uh, we just want to give God glory for that and, and say thank you. In and, and fact, if you live anywhere around Jinx or anywhere near Jinx, listen, we don't do campuses to make it more convenient for people. We, we do campuses to make it easier for people to plug in, to be connected, to be in small groups, to serve in children's ministry, to bring their kids, to bring their kids' friends, to bring your neighbors. That's why we do that. It's all about mission. It's not about convenience. And so if you live anywhere near Jinx or you've been to Jinx, you should go help us in Jinx and, and help us launch this campus, which we will do next Easter, and, and so, in fact, uh, if you take that connect card at all of our campuses today and that's you i want you to write your name on it and your information but then write jinx at the bottom of it and we will put you in a mailing list in an email list in a calling list where you will receive specific information about jinx that we won't communicate to everybody it'll just be to those who are thinking about going to jinx okay in fact you can mark it down right now on sunday night december 3rd uh we're going to do a vision night in jinx at that new campus and and so we'll worship we'll pray together and we'll just pray about what God is doing there and pray about what God's going to lead us to do and and give you information about that start. Okay. And so December 3rd, we'll be there and we'll worship there. And you can see that campus uh, that that God has put in our laps, the second campus uh, that we're purchasing with this money. In fact, we transferred $800,000 this week into Egypt uh, to own our first piece of dirt and building in the country of Egypt, which is incredible. And in fact, if, if you think through all of the complications involved in a church-owning land in an Islamic state, it's, a, it's been years of praying and years of working and, and our partners there and participating with what God is going to do there, so glory to God for that. We're also going to continue in Jordan uh, and, and with the Syrian refugee crisis there in Jordan. We're going to continue to amp up what we're doing there and what God seems to be blessing in incredible ways. And the last part of this offering is going to fund TC Toys which at last I heard 4,200 children already registered uh, to come to our church to receive toys with their families and and their brothers and sisters and their moms and dads and grandmothers or whoever's going to come. Just do the math for a minute of how many people will be on this Battle Creek campus on that Sunday, uh, December 10th, receiving not just toys and blessing and entertainment and value and and dignity, but, but the gospel. And we will watch hundreds of people give their lives to Christ. And so, in fact, speaking of that, uh, last week I, I made a pretty hard pitch on you to sign up and and to help us uh, with TC Toys. And here's the good news, a thousand of you signed up. Uh, To help us on that day, here's the opportunity. We still need 400 more of you to sign up and help us on that day, 400 more. So you can't just assume the person beside you is going to do your job. you got to do your job. And and so fill out that card and and participate. In fact, I, I told the first service, we should charge you to serve at TC Toys. All of you pay big money to go to Haiti or Sudan or wherever you go on these mission trips and and participate to get to see God work right up close and firsthand. And and you send out letters and people support you and and there's this prayer chain that happens. What I'm saying to you, you get to go on a mission trip all in one day in your city and watch hundreds of people with these eyes give their lives to Christ and lives change forever and ever and ever. It's a glorious experience. So we're not going to charge you. You get to give an offering and you get to participate and serve in it. And so fill that out and sign up to be a part of that. Now, as we complete this series today called The Endgame, I want to remind you the endgame is what's What's the plan all along, right? And we said in John 10, 10, that the enemy's end game is to kill, steal, and destroy. But Jesus' end game is to give us life and to give us life more abundantly. And what the enemy does in order to keep us playing his game and along with his way, he keeps us playing these games we've been talking about. And so as I complete the the series today, I want to do it by asking a question. And now I specifically want to ask at all of our campuses, everybody who's a parent, a question. Okay, and so at every campus, if you're a parent, just raise your hand and let me see your hand. Every single campus, okay? And so you're who I'm talking to and you're the ones I want to answer this question. And I want to set the context for the question. You go into a parent-teacher conference with your child, already sweating, right? We're already nervous. They set us in a chair that's designed for a toddler. And, 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 and we sit there and it's awkward I don't even know what you would do Kent I mean what would you do on that chair you just stand there and look at it right? well we didn't even try to get in the chair but they put us on a little chair and we have this conversation about our children about our children's performance right and so you're sitting at the parent teacher conference you look across the desk at the teacher who gets to sit in a big person chair and, and, and you ask them how's my kid doing and, and, and here's the teacher's answer your kid is average half the kids are worse than your kid and half the kids are better Now, here's the question. How how would that make you feel? Now, I want you just to not answer yet because I want to take the question further for you. Then you go to ball practice, and and you ask the kid's coach, how's my kid doing? And the coach says, she is so very average. In fact, she's the most average athlete I have ever seen. I think she'll get to play occasionally. (laughs) Average. Or you got to... A son who's taken the ACT or the SAT and the scores come back and the results come back right at the 50th percentile right in the middle of the whole pack and you have an absolutely average kid H- how would you react to that and for some of you are like praise Jesus right <laughs> but 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 for most of us We don't like it, right? We we don't like that. It makes us very uncomfortable because what you want to hear is that your kid is above average. What you want to see is that curve that goes way up in the middle because that's where everybody lands on the curve, right? And then it comes way down here on the other end and says it's really, really hard to get to this place on the graph. And you want to see your kid's name right there, uh, above average, way above average, right? And here's the thing that I want you to ponder for just a second. The test scores. The shooting percentage, the classwork, all of it, none of those numbers matter. None of them matter. But what matters is what those numbers are in comparison to everyone else, right? That's the trap that we have fallen into. And so you're in sales, and your sales numbers, they only matter in comparison to everybody else's sales numbers, right? Your home, you're going to sell it. Well, what's it worth? Well, it only matters what's it worth compared to all the other homes in in, in our neighborhood. Now, I want to ask you today, why is that the case? Why is that the case with our kids and our jobs and our houses and all our stuff and our lives? Why is that? And it may be because we are trapped in what I'm calling the same game. Now, I'm only calling it the same game, so it rhymes with the other two parts that we've covered the last two weeks, right? That we, we did the shame game, and we did the blame game, and today we're doing the same game. So they all rhyme, and you can remember them. But when I say same game, what, what I'm saying is, is the comparison game or the comparison trap. A- a- and uh, w- by that, I mean uh, we live lives in such a way that we only care about how we're doing or what we have or how we look compared to everyone else, or at least compared to someone else, right, that, that matters and, and we are jockeying against. And it's so strange that as the children of God, that we would live in such a way that we find our identity, and we find our worth, and we find our performance, and we find our value based on how we're doing compared to other people. Now, I just want to parenthesis for a second and say to you, comparison in and of itself is not a bad thing. It can be a good thing, right? In fact, some of you are like, he's repenting from competition. You're wrong. And you know better than that, right? I think a competitive spirit is a good thing. It takes everybody's bar higher, right, when you get competitive. But a spirit of comparison can be a really damaging thing. And so what we find out is that comparing in and of itself is not this bad thing. In fact, it's how you teach a child. This box is bigger than this box, right? Or this one is further away than that one. There's a point of reference, and there's nothing wrong with having a point of reference. But as adults... Uh, it can be a good thing as well, right? When you comparison shop, you find out I can get that same car for this much instead of that much because we compared and, and we did that thing. But where it really gets damaging and bad is when we use that same level of comparison to determine our identity or to determine our self Worth uh, before our Maker, right? And so instead of relying on what God says about us, we compare ourselves to other people. And this comparison game, by the way, is nothing new. This existed all the way back at at the second sin on the planet, right? Not the first one, but the second sin on the planet. You go back to Genesis chapter 3, the very first sin, and that's where Eve and the serpent and Adam and the apple and all of that, which every time I read it, I think, an apple, right? It wouldn't even kind of be tempting to me. To, to go after the apple, if it had been something with fat on it or ribeye or a filet or, or, or some cheesecake or whatever, I mean, I, I would have been really, really tempted, but an apple would not have been the choice, right? But what happened is we took that apple and this mirror that we're standing before and we're looking before, and, and we see ourselves as Adam and Eve before sin entered the world as shameless. And we see ourselves as blameless. And we're not worried about being same or comparing ourselves one to another. But when sin entered the world, it's as if it shattered the mirror. And what we've been doing ever since is trying to pick up the pieces of the mirror and put them back in. But what we have created, and as ludicrous as that sounds, by the way, what we have created is this uh, funhouse mirror. It's not even kind of accurate, right? And so when we're looking in the mirror and we're playing the blame game, all we see is the people who've wounded us. All we see is the shortcomings in life. All we see is is he did this or she did that and we blame everybody and we never get to see who we are in Christ. The same thing is true when you play the shame game. When you play the shame game, all you see is uh, your insecurities and your problems and the things that you want to cover up. You see your imperfections, right? And and everybody knows where they need concealer, by the way. Everybody knows that. that, that I need fake eyelashes or I need to put makeup here or my bald spot there or whatever. And, And I don't know how you see yourself in the mirror. Some of you are just freaky weird. You look in the mirror and you're like, wow. Right? I mean, some of us do that. I would put myself kind of in that camp sometimes. But when I look in the mirror, I see my 25-year-old self. And I think I look like a model. And Meredith sees me as a model citizen, maybe, right? But not a model. And, and, but, but some of you look at yourself and all you see is the imperfections. And, and everywhere along the way, you, you look at yourself. In fact, Meredith and I took a few days and which we haven't done in months and months and months, to, to just go away and recalibrate. I just finally convinced her. She's such a homebody that I, I just said, Honey, we are going. We are going. We are going. And so I booked the flight, and we went to Miami for a couple of days. I've been hearing about Miami. Let's go to Miami. I want to go somewhere warm. I hate cold weather, by the way. I hate it. And, and, and so we went to Miami, which was beautiful, but, but it's the land filled with beautiful people. Nobody warned me about that. <laughs> and it's not just beautiful people. Like Meredith was the only white person I saw in all of Miami. There were Latin, there were Romans, there were Italians. They were, I mean, just, just every beautiful kind of skin you can imagine. And, and, and so I'm looking around all these people, but there's also all kinds of Botox and collagen and just freaky weird stuff, freaky weird stuff. I got in a conversation with a lady who had something bad go wrong with her lips. <laughs> and she tried to smile at me, and she went. And I was like can I take a picture of that nobody's going to believe it I got to find an illustration here and what they do by the way in in these elevators in Miami where you're on your way down to the pool you're with these people who took seven hours to get ready to go to the pool somebody told them that their butt cheeks are their best feature so they pulled the bathing suit all the way up and and, want to demonstrate you know their one asset that they have right and and, and so I, I didn't even mean to do that that was so funny I didn't mean to do that And so then they put mirror upon mirror in the the deal. It's weird. I mean, it's a mirror on a mirror, so you see 19 trillion of her butt cheeks, right, in this (laughs) elevator. And you see yourself, and you're comparing yourself to all this collagen and all this plastic surgery and all this. I did not even know until I saw it with my own eyes that it is an option to get pectoral implants for a man. And I feel like I look like a dad, and I'm sitting here with all these guys that had pecs put in under their skin and airbrushed the abs on. (laughs) And it's a weird, weird scenario, right? And, And some of us, we try to compare ourselves to this, that, and the other, and every time you compare, you either end up with a spirit of inferiority or a spirit of superiority, neither of which are right, right? And so you go back to Genesis 3, and you see this sin enter the world, but then Adam and Eve have two children. Cain and Abel, and watch what plays out in their story in, in Genesis chapter 4. What's happening to this thing? Is that the first verse I wanted? That it is. Okay, when, when, when they grew up, Abel became a shepherd while Cain cultivated the ground. When it was time for the harvest, Cain presented some of his crops as a gift uh, to the Lord. The, the next verse, verse 4, Abel also brought a gift, the best portions of the firstborn lambs from his flock. The Lord accepted Abel and his gift, but he did not accept Cain and his gift. This made Cain very angry, and he looked dejected. Now, the question every time you come to that text is why. Why did God reject Cain and reject Cain's offering. I've done this sermon before, I'm not doing it today, but I I will tell you that it has everything in the world to do with those two words, some and best. Everything to do with those two words, right? Cain brought some, not the best. Abel brought the best, and he brought the first. And when you look at the scriptures, all the way through the scriptures, there is a theme related to God about best and first he deserves our best and he deserves what is first right that we are placing him on the throne first and best in our lives and the way we do that in the modern culture of bringing our ties to god is we bring the first 10 percent of everything that god blesses us with right and some of you choke on that and you struggle with that and i just want to say to you it's ludicrous to me that you would trust god with your eternity forever and ever and ever, to get you to another world called heaven, and yet you won't trust him with a dime out of a dollar. It does not make any sense to me whatsoever, but when we trust him and we give him a dime out of a dollar on the front end, the Bible says he will bless it, and I for one would rather live on 90 percent that has been blessed than 100 percent that has been cursed, right? And so when we talk about a Christmas offering, the word is offering. It's not uh, tithes. This is not d- deferring that giving. It's not, th- that's not what we're talking about. An offering is a free will offering. That's how the New Testament describes it. It's out of your heart. You decide how much you give, not under compulsion, not under any pressure whatsoever. You pray about it. You ask God what you should do over and above your tithes, and he tells you what to do, right? It's an offering. By the way, you don't get to offering until you get past the 10% of what God already declared was his. He said, it's mine. And so we're just bringing it back to him, right? We don't give the tithe, we bring the tithe. We're just bringing it back to the house of God. But look what happens in this story when Cain plays this comparison game uh, out. Jump down to verse 8. One day, Cain suggested to his brother, let's go out into the fields. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel, and he killed him. Which means this thing led to death. Cain was upset, he was angry, he felt rejected. Why? Because he compared himself to his brother, Abel. He compared. That's what happened. And he tied his identity not to who he was, or not to what he was to be, not to what God wanted to do in him or through him, not even, quite honestly, to what he should or shouldn't do, but how he ranked in comparison to his brother, and it drove him to murder. Now that's extreme. But don't get lost in the story because your envy and your uh, same game may not lead you to murder, but it will lead you to sin. And sin every time leads to death. That's what sin does. And, and, And so I want you to take a look at another story, this time two guys named Jacob and Esau. These are Isaac's kids, Abraham's grandkids, and they were twins. And the Bible says when they were born, something interesting happened, that Esau came out first, and then here came Jacob on his heel, literally, holding on to the heel of his brother. But watch how this plays out over in chapter 25 uh, of Genesis. As the boys grew up, Esau became a skillful uh, hunter, and, and he was an outdoorsman. But Jacob had a quiet temperament, preferring to stay at home. Isaac loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob, right? And and you see this play out in the very next verse, right? That Isaac loved Esau because he enjoyed eating the wild game, Esau brought home, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Esau was the hunter, he was the outdoorsman, and Jacob was the homeboy, right? He liked to stay home. Jacob, liked to, uh, Esau liked to get dirty and, and liked to do things with his hands, and, and Jacob liked to stay at home and read a book. By the way, nothing wrong with either of those things. Absolutely nothing wrong. But it drove them to hate each other because their parents turned them against one another. A- and then Jacob stole Esau's birthright, and later he stole his blessing, right? You know the story. Why did that play out that way? Because every day his daddy Isaac compared him with his brother. Why can't you be a hunter? Why can't you be like your brother? Why are you always sitting around the house? Why are you always looking at a book? Why can't you be like Jacob? Uh, Anybody ever live under an umbrella like that? And you watch this play out, and one more story real quick, okay? I'm going to jump to one more, maybe two more. And I just want us to see how this plays out all throughout the Scripture. This time, Saul and David. Saul is king, right? And Yeah, Saul is king, and David is his number one general, right? You jump over to 1 Samuel chapter 18, and you see this play out. And the way this plays out is it says, when the victorious Israelite army was returning home after David had killed the Philistine, right? That's Goliath. Women from all the towns of Israel came out to meet King Saul. It's a pep rally, right? It's a homecoming. It's the, We just won the national championship kind of a thing. And the band is there and the, the choir is there. They're all there. And they sang and they danced for joy with tambourines and with uh, cymbals. This was their song. Saul has killed his thousands, but David, his... Ten thousands. You see how this is playing out? Now, now watch. This made Saul very angry. What's this, he said? They credit David with ten thousands and me with only thousands. Next they'll be making him their king. This is the king thinking next they'll be making him king. So from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. And the irony is this, is that Saul's jealousy actually led to David being made king what he was trying to avoid, what he was afraid of, because of his jealousy, he actually caused to play out. He should have been like, at worst case scenario, this is my man David, right? He is my giant slayer. He does this in my army because I am the king. But but that's not what he did. Instead of wanting to be king, he wanted to be king and general and prophet and priest. And he wanted to be it all and he wanted to do it all. And God said, sit down, Saul, your ego is too big. And he Raised up David to be king in his place. And the lesson is pretty clear that comparison for identity's sake will lead us to envy, and envy will lead us down a path we do not want to go down. It can lead to a blessing being removed. It can lead to jealousy. It can lead to anger. It will lead to sin. It will lead to taking shortcuts. It can even lead to death. You see it all throughout the scripture. And David knew what his gift was. Now, I don't want you to miss this, church. What was David's gift? Rock throwing. That was his gift. That was his gift. He was good at throwing rocks. You say, what is your point, pastor? Here is my point. It doesn't have to be a good gift to be used well. And it doesn't have to be a good gift to be used by God. You take what he gives you and you use it. Not one person knew that David, including David, that one day he would throw a rock and kill Goliath and it would escalate him into the kingdom and into the throne. Nobody knew that and nobody supposed that. David was just faithful with what he had and with where he was and with what God had gifted him to do. No one knew that. And so what I want to say to you is, listen, learn your strengths and learn your gifts and lean into them and watch and see what God will do with you. Saul was fine, by the way, until he heard that song. He he was fine with David and all of David's gifts until the song was sung. And, And by the way, that's the power of the song. What's the soundtrack to your life? Because you got the wrong soundtrack and you got the wrong score, it is leading you to the wrong places and to the wrong outcomes. But when you got the right score and the right soundtrack, it will lead you to the place that God wants you to be. That's the power of praise and worship. That is the power of, of the right thing being played over your life. That, that's why we, we don't just sing, and that's why those of you who come in late because you don't like music or it's too loud, or you're missing part of the faith because there is something powerful that happens when you will sing praises to God. and it becomes the soundtrack of your life. In fact, next Sunday, we've kind of learned this MO the last few months in in our church. In the summer, we do this thing called Praise and Worship Night, where all of our campuses gather at a campus, and we just worship with no clock and and no time limit, and and we just go, and it's so powerful that we decided on some of our holiday Sundays, next Sunday, Thanksgiving Sunday, we're going to do that. We're just extended worship with no time clock, and we're just going to worship the Lord. You do not want to miss that. But Saul heard this song, and he was fine with David just being a rock thrower. He was fine with David being a giant killer. He was fine with David being a general in the army. But when that envy began to play out and when that comparison began to play out, he eyed, is what the Bible says. He eyed David differently. He saw him differently. And I just want you to hear me on this point, and I just want to tell you the truth so you'll quit questioning why is this happening to you. There will be people in this world, who will despise you simply because you are effective. I promise. I promise that to be true. It is not just when you are ineffective and can't get it figured out and that, that people will despise you. When you become effective, there will be people around you that the devil will place around you who will despise you because you are effective. And the dilemma, by the way, is when you allow the comparison to be how you see yourself. So no matter how wonderful you are and how gifted you are, listen to me, you can never be good at being somebody else. You can never be great at being somebody else. That just is not in the cards. One more story. I told you one more, but one more, okay? Let's jump to the New Testament, and I want you to see it play out in the New Testament in the Gospel of John. John chapter 3. And it says, so John's disciples came to him and said, Rabbi... The man you met on the other side of the Jordan River, that one you identified as the Messiah, he is also baptizing people, and everyone is going to him instead of coming to us. Verse 27, John replied, no one can receive anything unless God gives it from heaven. You yourselves know how plainly I told you I am not the Messiah. I am only here to prepare the way for him. He is truly a humble man truly a humble man and this is something incredible that is playing out and happening here and you got to understand the context of John and Jesus and their relationship John the Baptist was the cousin of Jesus Christ now i want you to take that knowledge and lay that story on this relationship between these two men okay so they're they're raised together They grew up with one another. And every time they got together for Thanksgiving or family meals or whatever, the kids are playing, the parents are sitting back, taking a break and just resting, and they're talking like parents talk. And no doubt Mary looked at Elizabeth and said, Wow, Elizabeth, John the Baptist. He wasn't John the Baptist at that time. He was just John, right? But he baptized people later, so he became known as John the Baptist. John the Baptist is getting so big. Elizabeth would, yes, he is. His daddy." Zechariah thinks one day he'll grow up to be a prophet, to which Mary had to think. That's nice. (laughs) My son's going to be the Messiah. (laughs) Now put yourself in John the Baptist's shoes. His whole life he is being compared to Jesus, christ and he is just keeping his head down he is just being faithful he is just doing his thing he is just going to work every day and he is baptizing people and then the disciples his wander over to the other side of the river and what do they see they see crowds crowds and crowds and crowds of people and what are they doing they are lining up to get baptized by jesus Baptized. That's John the Baptist thing. And so they come running over to him, and they say, Hey, John, you're not going to believe what we saw over there. And, and John the Baptist, you got to love him, man. He just takes it in stride, and, and listen to what he says. He's like, Yep, I heard it my whole life. <laughs> How big did you say the crowds were? Figures. Because John knew who he was was. And John knew who Jesus was. And when you know who you are and who Jesus is, you know the truth. And do you know what the truth will do? The truth will set you free. So let me break this down for you, and I'm going to give you four truths today that if you need to hold on to them, you need to latch on to these truths, if you want to stop playing the comparison game. And number one is this, you got to know your true source your true source. John the Baptist knew who his true source was. He knew it. He he knew uh, where his calling for ministry came from. He knew where his energy to be a minister came from every day of his life. His disciples uh, come to him with this incredibly discouraging downer of a message, right? You're being outnumbered, John. You're going to be replaced. And what does John the Baptist say? In, In verse 27, look at what he says. John replied, no one can receive anything unless God gives it from heaven. Now, by the way, he could have easily said, guys, it's the Messiah, the Messiah. We want people to go to him. But he didn't even take that route. That would have been too easy of a route for him. But look at what he did say, because if you're not careful, by the way, you will misread what he said. You'll misread it this way. Those big crowds were given to Jesus by God. That's not what he said. That's not what he said. The object of the sentence is not Jesus. The object of the sentence is John himself. John the Baptist. And so the right way and the, the correct way to read what John said is... I can't receive anything unless God gives it to me from heaven. In other words, you got to know your true source. And around here, this is the way we say it. We've been saying it for decades, right, that that everything belongs to God, everything comes from God, and everything is distributed by God. I've had you say that hundreds of times and repeat that after me over and over and over again. In other words, if you got something, it comes from God. And whatever you've got was distributed by God in his infinite wisdom, knowing that it could possibly be good for you. And whatever your neighbor has, whether it is more or less, ultimately, it comes from God. Now, does that mean you can't get more? Of course not. That's not what it means. But if you do, guess where it came from? From God. And what we need to do is steward what God has put in our hands. We need to be faithful with the little or the much or however much it is that God has placed in our hands. And when you compare what he gave you to what he gave someone else, you spoil it. And don't spoil it. Don't ruin it with envy, but embrace what he's given you and be thankful for it. Be grateful for it. Next truth. Here here it is know your true role. John the Baptist knew exactly why he was there and he knew exactly what his role was. And by the way, his role is our role to point people to Jesus. That's our role, right? And and in verse 28, look at verse 28. You you yourselves know how plainly I told you I'm not the Messiah. I'm here to prepare the way for him. He plainly told them. In In other words, he never let them think more highly of him than they should have thought of him. He never missed an opportunity to remind them, hey, I'm not the Messiah. You know what that tells me? That tells me there were plenty of opportunities for him to be confused with the Messiah, that, that people thought maybe he was the Messiah, that plenty of people thought that, hey, maybe this is the one we've been looking for. Now think about that for a second. You may have that dilemma. I, I've never had that dilemma. Nobody's ever said, Are you the Messiah? But but let's just assume you were confused with the Messiah. And people said to you, Man, you are such a great person. You are beloved by the public. So many people want to be your friend. People want to be around you all the time. Are you the Messiah? Eventually you'd say, you know what, no, uh-uh, maybe. <laughs> Probably. If you say so, you know what I'm saying? But, but what does John do? That's not what John does. John tells them plainly in every chance he gets. He doesn't buy into the hype. He, he doesn't buy into it. He tells it like it is. He knows his role and he knows his place to point people at Jesus. He doesn't try to inflate his standing to match an inflated ego. He knows who he is. And guess who else knows who he is? Don't miss this Jesus. Jesus knows who he is. And because John the Baptist knew who he was, that made him special in the kingdom of God. You want to know what makes you special in the kingdom of God? Knowing who you are and knowing whose you are. In fact, listen to how Jesus describes John the Baptist over in Matthew's gospel in Matthew chapter 11. John is the man whom the scriptures refer to when they say, Look, I am sending my messenger ahead of you, and he will prepare your way before you. I tell you the truth of all who have ever lived. None is greater than John the Baptist. Now, is Jesus saying that John the Baptist is the greatest person to ever live? I don't think that's what he's saying. Now, maybe one option of what he's saying is, is John's uh, great because we're all great, because we're all equal before God. But what I think he's saying, and what I do know, actually, is that when you play your role, no one is better at being you. And you're great in the kingdom of God because you're playing out the role that God designed for you. He did not just take auditions for the roles. He wrote the script. And he didn't just write the script. He made the actors who would play the parts in the script. And he did it with infinite wisdom and knowledge. And he wrote this whole story and wrote you into it for you to play your part. And when you know your true role, and when you fulfill your role, Jesus honors you. Imagine that. When you know your role and when you fulfill it, Jesus Christ honors you. And when then you get a glimpse of the impact that you can have by doing what God asks you to do, then you won't want to compare. You don't want to be somebody else, right? You you won't be envious of somebody else's calling at that point, right, Uh, by by what you had or wishing you had some different calling. To to be great in the kingdom of God is to be obedient to what God called you to be and what God called you to do. Uh, Listen to me. I don't want to be the next Billy Graham. I have no desire to be the next Martin Luther King Jr. I don't want to be the next Andy Stanley. I want to be the best Alex Hamaya the world has ever seen. And hear me. You need to be the best you That the world has ever seen. And you are not a scaled down version of someone else. And sometimes we have that idea that we look at them and we're like, they got the sunroof, they got the, you know, the the EcoBoost, they got the turbo, they got all this, uh, the electric, this, that, that, and the other. And I'm over here, I'm this basic version. That is not true. You are the fully loaded version of you. You need to be the best you that you can be. If you needed to be taller, he'd have made you taller. If you needed to be tanner, he'd have made you tan. If you needed to be smarter, he'd have made you smarter. He made you to play a role where you can point people to Jesus and nobody else can play that role. Nobody. And by the way, Ephesians says there were works prepared in advance for you to do. And so nobody can be you and nobody can do what you were created to do. Remember what Paul told Timothy in the last series we just talked about? He said to Timothy, fully carry out the ministry what ministry he was very clear the ministry that god gave you and that's how you be faithful and, and by the way the third truth that we need to embrace to stop playing this comparison game this same game it, 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 number three and i decided it to word this word it this way know your true joy know your true joy. And I know you think that you will have true joy if you just have a little bit better, whatever, than everybody else, or you're a little bit further along or a little bit more than everyone else. Listen, but true joy comes in knowing what God is doing. That's where true joy comes from, right? Look at verse 29. Is the bride, it is the bridegroom who marries the bride, and the bridegroom's friend is simply glad to stand with him and hear his vows. Therefore, I am filled with joy at his success. Now, bridegroom's friend, imagine best man. That's what he's talking about, okay? The best man. Any of you ever been a best man at a wedding? It's a Pretty simple job. You show up, right? Maybe you get the tux, and you put it on, and you show up your job is to not collapse during the ceremony. If you're a really good one, they'll ask you to hold the rings for a few minutes, right? If you're an amazing one, you will give a speech at the reception. But that's it. You just show up and and that's it. That's your whole part in the wedding. But back in that day, the the best man ran the whole show, right? He was in charge of the entire ceremony. And the ceremony, by the way, wasn't a couple of hours. It could last a couple of days or or even into weeks. You, You had to order the food, which meant you got the fatted calf, and you killed it, and you made sure it was cooked and and prepared. You got the musicians, you did the decorations, you got the guest list together, you made sure that Uncle Jacob doesn't show up, and if he does, he doesn't get anywhere near Cousin Martha, And, and, and you do all of the work, right? And you stand back at that point, and then you watch your friend get married and you are just so happy for him. That's what he's trying to say. And here's the question I want to ask you. When is the last time that you were genuinely happy about somebody else's success? Thrilled for them. And the best way, by the way, to break envy in your own life is to throw a party when somebody else succeeds. And if you want real success in your own life, I'm going to tell you one of the tricks is to pray for it in other people's lives last truth and and i want you to see this one number four know your true identity know who you are and find out who you are in christ discover your true standing in his kingdom by centering your identity in and on him Look, look at this verse verse 30 he must become greater and greater and i must become less and less in other words, my life ought to be centered not in me. My, my life ought to be centered in Christ. And it's a really important thing to understand uh, about how life works. A- and that the more my ego is at the center of my life purposes, the more miserable I am as a human being. Cause I'm fighting against the maker. I'm fighting against the way that I was made. The, the more God is at the center of my life, this is this paradox we live in as Christians, guys, that when I die to my ego, when God is at the center of my life, my life is greater and my life is bigger and my world is greater and bigger and I become less so that he can become greater. That's the kingdom. And that's life. And when Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 12 that we might be to the praise of his glory, hear me, he did not say that we might do praise. He said that we might be praise praise. In other words, your life is a praise to God. And when you understand who you are and whose you are and you are comfortable, you get comfortable with that. Your very life is a praise to God. And when you can declare, I am happy with how God made me, I am done wishing I was taller or bigger or smaller or I had green eyes or whatever, and you quit all of that and you say, thank you God for how you made me. I am a praise to your glory. If you can get to that place, it is like a breath of fresh air blowing through your life and through uh, the the days of your life. And when you get to the place where you quit comparing, you will quit forfeiting what it is that God has for you. But when you compare what you have and what you've been given with, with, with other people, you forfeit it. In fact, Paul said it this way, We are unwise to compare ourselves to one another because when we do that, we make an idol out of them. And you got to get to the place where you just declare, hey, he ain't me and she ain't her. You say, what are you saying? It's terrible grammar, but it's amazing theology. Why? Because comparing is useless. Because you were fearfully and wonderfully made. And until you believe that, you are not obedient and you are not walking in faith. Hear me. When we sing, we go from glory to glory and he's taking us higher and higher. Listen, we we are not talking about we stay at this level for the rest of our lives and the rest of our walk in Christianity. No, no, we're going higher and higher and higher and he is taking us to a whole nother place. Comparing is useless because you are fearfully and wonderfully made and you can overcome every single obstacle. You can recover from any single fall in your life. You can prosper in this life when you get out of your comfort zone and you stretch your faith enough to be you who God made you to be, and and there's no telling what God will do in you when you get to that place. Listen, it's not about looking in the mirror and seeing what you see and then taking what you see and lying it up next to everything else and everyone else and comparing it. That's not how you live this life. In addition... What's worse than that is for you to look in the mirror. What religion would say to you is that you look in that mirror and ask, What would Jesus do? That somehow it's about imitation instead of association with Jesus Christ. And you ask, What would Jesus do? Listen, a better question than that is to say, What would Jesus do if he were me? Because he lived in the first century and he wore sandals and a robe. You you don't want to know what Jesus would do, right, in that moment. You want to know what Jesus would do here in this moment if he were you given what you were given, right? And, And some of you need to look at what you were given and look in the mirror and go, I've done a heck of a lot with what I was given. I'm confident David looked in the mirror and thought, I killed a lion and a bear with a switch. What if God had given me a gun? What would I have done? Now think about who you are and what God has given you and what he he wants you to do with it. The better question is for you to look in that mirror and say, Jesus, not just what would you do if you were me, but to look in that mirror and say, Jesus, what would you do in me? Because that's what he wants to do. He wants to do the, the Jesus thing in you. That's what he wants to do in your life. And, and so you got to quit looking at that mirror and beating yourself up. You got to quit looking at that mirror and looking at every insecurity that you have. You got to quit looking in that mirror and thinking, I, "I will never be the dad that I need to be because I can't fix that. I will never have the job that I need. I will never go where I need to go. I will never be able to recover that. That relationship will never ever ever be restored for me." You got to quit all of that. And what you got to do is look in the mirror and see what your heavenly father sees when when he sees you in the mirror and, and understand that what he did for you and in you is put Jesus in there. So that when you look in that mirror, what you see is exactly what your heavenly father sees is his son and that he's in here, he's in you. Two weeks ago, we referred to this door. You don't just open the door to Jesus and say, I need you to come and save me, and that's it. He punched my heaven ticket, and that's the relationship. That's not the relationship he wants. In fact, there's nothing biblical about that whatsoever. What he wants to do is come inside of you and abide with you. He wants you to stay close to him. He wants to do in you and through you what only he can do but he wants to do it in a way that's uniquely fit to you and the personality and the wiring and the shaping. When David said, you knit me together in my mother's womb, listen, he's saying every little synopsis, every little part of the DNA, every little hair follicle, every piece of you, he put it together for you to be you. And how ungrateful to look at the giver of all gifts and try to compare yourself to somebody else. You don't have enough information to do that. You don't see their blemishes. You you don't see what they struggle with. You don't see what they're scared of. You don't see any of that. You just see the collagen and the Botox and the G-string. And what God is saying to you, hey, you need to understand what I have done in you is bigger and better than you have ever thought, have ever dreamed, and he wants to do more in you and more through you than you can remotely comprehend. So we started out today talking about parent-teacher conference. And, and, And that teacher and that coach and that test looking at you and saying, your kid is average. And what I want to tell you today, that's not what your Heavenly Father sees in you. And what I know is that I'm not speaking to average people this morning. I'm not speaking to average individuals. I-, I want you to get out of this comfort zone and get into out of this safe zone and get into this faith zone and put a demand on your faith to trust Him, to actually trust Him him to make you what he wants you to be. To trust him with how he made you and what he wants to accomplish through you. And let him give you his dream for you. Quit trying to live somebody else's dream. Quit trying to chase after somebody else's thing. Celebrate who he's made you to be. Listen, there's always going to be somebody bigger. There's always going to be somebody richer. There's always going to be somebody faster. There's always going to be somebody who can sing better, who can preach better, who can do everything. Listen, always, always that's going to be the case. But you celebrate who you are and get rid of all that torment and get rid of all that distress in your life by putting an end to this comparison game in in your life. And, and, And here's the summary, by the way. You say, how do I remember all this? Here it is. Stay in your lane and keep your eyes on Jesus. Stay in your lane and keep your eyes on you. Quit looking over here. Quit looking over here. That's how you lose races. Stay in your lane, the lane he puts you in, that he wants you to run in and keep your eyes on Jesus Christ. And I'm saying it again. I'm not speaking to average people this morning. I'm not. I'm speaking to children of the King of Kings. And what I'm doing with faith for you and maybe on your behalf is today I am calling out treasure that has been buried deep within you. And I'm calling it to come out. I'm calling out dreams that God God has put in you and deposited there. I'm calling out giftings and I'm calling out talents and I'm calling out books and I'm calling out investments and I'm calling out operational talent and strategy and ideas and businesses and songs and movies and all these God-given ideas that he has put within you, his children. I'm calling out all of the untapped potential. And I want you to stand at every campus at every single campus. And I just want you to close your eyes. I just want you to put your hands like you're receiving a gift from heaven. And today I'm going to declare it over you. Rather than you declare it, I'm going to declare it over you. And I want you right where you're standing at every single campus to say, Spirit, listen up. And you receive it. Because of God's redemption, you are a new creation. You are of infinite worth. You declare, I receive it. You are deeply loved. You are completely forgiven. You are fully pleasing to your Father. You are totally accepted by God. You are absolutely complete in Christ. Say, I receive it. Listen, church, when your performance reflects your new identity in Jesus Christ, that is dynamically unique. It's unique. There has never been another person like you in the history of mankind. Nor will there ever be. He made you an original. He made you a a one-of-a-kind. He made you really, really, really somebody. And I'm going to ask the worship pastors at every campus to come. And we're going to sing. And I want you to know today, church, there is power in the name of Jesus there is power to break the chains of blame there is power to break the chains of shame there is power to break break the chains of shame and all of those sh- chains that are on your life the power of Jesus wants to break them off of you and free you so that when you look in that mirror you see a reflection of the son of God who is a living and who's living and alive in you. Now let's declare it with with all of our hearts and lift the roof off every campus this morning.
1: army that's going to rise up today because of the name of Jesus, because of that power. So let's declare that out over our lives. There's an army rising up. That's us. There's an army rising up. There's an army rising up. Every chain, break every chain, break every chain. We declare that today, come on. This and all be right.